1: So, um, welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, uh, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Sabrina Mittermeier about a new book, A Cultural History of the Disneyland Theme Parks, Middle Class Kingdoms. Um, welcome to the podcast.
0: Well, thank you for having me. Um, this is a great
1: book in uh, so many ways, uh, not least of which... Um, is the kind of academic analysis on this, you know, really uh, I think crucial and, and vitally um, kind of important part of, of popular culture. But also, um, and, and I think this often when, when academics say this, um, it can sound like a, a sort of a uh, you know a slightly kind of backhanded compliment. But it, it must have been an incredible amount of fun uh, to do this research. Um, it, you know, the, the, the kind of the sites, the theme parks, really sort of come alive through. Through the text, and the place to kind of start, I think, um, with um, a book that's both, you know, kind of um, got some really serious um, and important academic insights, but also is, you know, a, a sort of a, a fun and, and interesting research project, is to introduce um, the kind of key subject matter, and I guess the key subject matter here is this idea of the middle class kingdom. Um, and partially th- this is in relation to Walt Disney and who he was and stuff like this, but also, I guess it draws on uh, a range of kind of critical theoretical perspectives. So yeah, to kick off, could you talk me through this idea of the, uh, the middle-class kingdom?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, and first of all, yes, it was a lot of fun to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, um, as you said, look, it goes back to Walt Disney. It goes back to sort of the times when he starts to become very successful. So obviously he starts to do, make movies in the thirties um, and makes a snow White and the seven dwarfs, even I think what 29 even. Um, so, and, but he, he's a man that always looks for the newest idea and, you know, sort of, he had a very uncanny feeling about what is the zeitgeist. What do people care about? um and so very early on like when his um, animation studio becomes successful he starts to look for new ideas to do this and one impetus actually is that people can't visit the Walt Disney Studios at the time like they could visit other studios to this very day like you could take tours of Warner or Universal um and So he's looking to build a place where people sort of can meet Mickey Mouse, but he's also very interested in things like miniatures and, you know, um, traveling shows. And he's also acquainted with, you know, classic amusement parks of the time, obviously, but he doesn't like them very much because amusement parks are dirty and therefore, you know, the lower class, quote unquote um and if you know more about amusement parks the history there's also that they're usually public open spaces that people can go to and have fun um and have alcohol and drink and mingle and then at some point they become these closed off spaces where they're segregated mostly due to you know racism obviously but also classism and so um when he starts to think about this his idea is that he wants a place like this but he wants Um, it clean and he wants it uh, for a specific demographic even though he doesn't never fully spell that out but what happens is when Disney starts to decide he wants to build this kind of park um, he wants to very much target the middle class and this then by then being 1950s America the middle class means white people Um, so That is the idea also behind the title of the book and and sort of the thread that goes through the book that all of these Disneyland's, even the one in Shanghai that just opened in 2016, they always look to target a middle class or an upper class even at this point as, you know, what even is the middle class (laughs) anymore? But it's it's, uh, about affluent people and for the most part, white affluent people. Um, that they want to get into the parks. So Obviously, then when they go to Asia, that's a bit of a different story, but it's still that sort of core demographic.
1: Yeah, and and it sort of it kind of comes comes back to to bite the the, the overall cooperation, uh, not not just with the expansion in, in into Asia, but also uh, with their kind of experiments in in Europe as well of, of having you know I guess a kind of a a lack of understanding of how you know different middle classes manifest themselves, different middle class kind of you know tastes, patterns of consumption, desires and interests. That this this kind of stuff, and and we'll kind of come to that in turn as we we go through the stories of of the parks. The the other kind of um, starting off point, I suppose, is is maybe actually with the original um, park, and 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 obviously you know in order to set up comparisons, you spend a lot of time in the book. Um, thinking about the original Disneyland and one of the things that comes through um, each of the kind of case studies of each of the parks is the sense that these parks have to be understood as kind of embodiments of particular uh, times, places, you know, you know, particular sort of historical um, moments and, and conjectures and the story, I guess, of the original Disneyland is the story of the 1950s in, in America, you know, the, the Cold War backdrop, this kind of stuff. And this sort of is crystallized, I, <clears throat> I suppose, with this idea of Disneyland being what, what you call a kind of a cultural product of the 1950s. So, So how is it a kind of a, a cultural product of the 1950s and how does a kind of a um, i suppose a, a walkthrough or, or you know on, on <laughs> in, in pandemic times you know a, maybe a, a video walkthrough of the park show it as a cultural product of the 1950s
0: well i argue like the, the that specific cultural moment of the 1950s is, is still so ingrained in the structure of the park um it there's obviously like designs and attractions that have come and gone so but the the main idea of Disneyland remains so if you walk through the park the first thing you see is main street usa so that's like a turn of the century street of what main street you know people imagine what it was like in small town america um and obviously that's not how it ever actually was but it's very ideologically clear of like this is a very patriotic place it's a very whitewashed place um and sort of very the the almost utopian version of small-town america um and that's obviously very important for cold war times because you know patriotism is important is getting stronger and stronger in opposition to the soviet union and and it's 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 always there like it's not just in Main Street Disneyland is always patriotic in all of its ways and when you walk through the park so you come through Main Street USA you look towards a castle that alone is a very weird thing (laughs) normally you think well you know you're in in a sort of small town America why is there a castle um but that's also in in many ways fitting in with that because the castle is also there it also has to do with sort of white medievalism the fantasy behind it is fantasyland. land this is where you have all the animated films that disney was trying to promote you have also have to understand the park is a way to sell basically the other products at the time so you sell the animated films through the rights in fantasy and mainly but also in other places um one other way you can tell is one of the other areas is Adventureland. um so it's sort of an amalgamation of all of these places that you know the 50s white middle class would deem exotic quote-unquote so it's like a mixture of africa asia the amazon um and sort of the adventurer narratives um and obviously very racially troubling um But that was also very much the side guess of the 50s. So one of the things I also talk about then, um, also going into the 60s, there's, there's a lot happening with tiki, which is a phenomenon that has come back in the last few years. But it was a huge tiki craze in the early 60s, for instance. Um, you know, where people went to tiki bars that also had to do with the GIs returning um, from the Pacific and you had musicals like South Pacific at the time and, you know, the, the movies with Elvis going to Hawaii, all of this. Um, and Frontierland is one of the other important areas, which is also something that's replicated in almost every other park. Um, and the 1950s are a time where Western becomes a very popular genre, which also directly ties in with Cold War values, because the Western, you know, it's always against the fight against the Indians, Um, and sort of all these anxieties of the Cold War can be found in the Western genre, and you can find them in Frontierland. And then there's Tomorrowland, um, which is all about, you know, very progressivistic idea of the future, everything is going to get better, um atomic energy plays a huge role in it but also domestic living which is very interesting when you think about oh tomorrow land shouldn't this all be about space and it is at some point but it also is about sort of the idea of what is um you know our utopian understanding of domestic living because in the 50s everybody's buying the new washers and dryers and other homemaking things so all of this is in there um And you have sort of this reassurance of Main Street and the reassurance and comfort and escapism um, of Fantasyland. But you have all of these sort of ideological ideas of the Cold War spun into it. Um, And yeah, I mean, I could go through literally every attraction, every ride, everything in this park and probably explain how that fits in there um obviously to find out more about that go there after the pandemic or if you can't go there read my book that is uh,
1: yeah <laughs> like literally re- re- read the book because it's uh, really great in terms of bringing the um the park uh to life actually and and it's funny in a way that as you kind of mentioned not just the um ideological kind of elements of the 1950s uh, context, but also like so much stuff where you just um, almost kind of cringe at how, you know, just unbelievably kind of crude some of the representations are and some of the assumptions about, you know, what um, not just, you know, the kind of, say, racial, ethnic other national representations are, but the sense of what, you know, good taste um, would, would be and what, you know, a particular audience would kind of aspire to. That template though with all of its um, its baggage as you mentioned you know still kind of comes up um, in in all of the, the the other parks in some you know the variation in, in in some form and this is is really kind of neatly illustrated by um, the second park the, uh, the 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 park in, in Florida and, and the creation of the kind of you know uh, I, I suppose you know much more kind of uh sort of futuristic in some ways but also still you know weirdly kind of uh regressive and, and medieval uh magic kingdom and, and and the epcot um center project and, and this you you describe in the book as being a product of you know the late 1960s and, and the 1970s when the uh the florida project is um is is kind of conceived of and and is built so what are the sort of um differences but i think you know more crucially like what are the similarities between uh these two parks even though they're quite quite a long time uh apart
0: yeah i mean in the end so they start planning a second Disneyland fairly quickly I mean the first park is very very successful so the idea is well let's build a second one at least that's what you would think happens what actually mostly happens is that Disney has already moved on like Walt himself who's still alive has already moved on to the idea of what else is the new thing we could do Um, and there's a lot of sort of spirit in the 1960s about again like living communities um, and he starts to think about actually building a city um, as crazy as that sounds so the idea is that Epcot um, mm-hmm. is going to be and that that's what Epcot is for it's going to be the, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow um, so he wants to build a city obviously needs a lot of money for that <laughs> um, so the idea is they're going to build a second Disneyland which they're going to call the Magic Kingdom um, in the end and that will actually just bring in people and bring in money and through that they will be able to sell this idea of apcot um and then basically they record an image film for apcot as well to sell it to companies to invest in it um and that's very short before walt disney's death in 1969 so um they never actually get there because he dies before they can really move forward with this sort of yeah, like almost impossible projects. But what they end up doing is build that second Disney park. Um, and they don't just build it sort of like, I mean, when they build it in Anaheim, it's also outside of the bigger city at that time. Um, but with Orlando, they make the choice to build, like uh, build it very far away because again, they want to build that city as well. Um, so they, build, they buy up tons and tons of land. Like this is twice the size of Manhattan, I believe. Um and they they start Walt Disney World that way so they buy a they, they buy all this land they build one uh, the theme park they build four hotels around it and they sort of create this idea of a vacation resort, which obviously is something we're very familiar with now, but that's on that's a pretty new idea back then to you know have this resort where people don't actually have to leave the premises and can spend one or two weeks there, um and so the park in and of itself is almost a clone of disneyland but they're already looking at like what attractions are working what are not working they're also trying to figure out is the demographic maybe different on the east coast um so they i mean it's florida so they also assume it's maybe more appealing to retirees then they found out no actually kids and teenagers are still coming so they need more thrill riots so all of this um and yeah, and they build it. And one of the key differences, also, and this is how you can always tell the historic context, is they build a part of the park world called, uh, called Liberty Square, um, which is a direct reflection of the fact that the U.S. has their uh, bicentennial in the '70s. So um, it, that's very much sort of a public history space where they reflect on, you know. Um, Uh, ideas of colonial America and you have that hall of presidents, um, attraction there where every U S president shows up as an animatronic figure. Um, which is also very interesting in context of Donald Trump, but (laughs) that's not something I have time to get into in the book. The,
1: I guess, yeah, you know, the kind of different historical context, um, matters a great deal there. but as, as you mentioned um, you, you know you're still in the same kind of national setting and you know there are sort of differences in terms of possible demographics that they're targeting and you know and, and maybe the, the kind of the limits of um, Walt Disney's personal ambition versus you know what as you mentioned becomes basically a kind of a, uh, a quite similar vision of the um, uh, of, of, of the theme park now The next two chapters deal with, um, I I might phrase it as a kind of like a success story and then a story about failure. Um, So, you know, to an extent, Tokyo Disneyland, um, I I think, in in the chapter is seen as this kind of interesting um, trans-cultural space is one of the terms you use to describe it. And, And it's really, I guess, a story of a. Of a success as an overseas venture, whilst Euro Disney, um, although the context is different now in the present day, certainly at the time uh, was seen as a as basically a, uh, as, as a failure for a whole variety of different reasons. You know, financial, uh, cultural, um, the the again, you know, the kind of uh, historical context. So, so maybe we could run those together. You know, what made uh, the Tokyo Disneyland a success, and what made euro uh, a disney a failure
0: so yeah i mean the key arguments that i'm trying to make here is that it's always whether they can target that middle to upper class demographic in the respective country they find themselves in, or whether they fail to do so So with Tokyo, that was very easy for them. It's also important to note that it wasn't like an impetus of the, like it wasn't the idea of the Walt Disney company to go and say, well, you know, this thing works. We're going to take it to a different country. Um, It's actually a a Japanese company that approaches them and says, we want to build a Disneyland. Um, And that's also actually how that um, park is set up in Tokyo. So it's owned um, by by japanese people uh by two japanese companies that came together for this um and they merely license it so it's designed by uh the disney engineers um that's what that part of the company is called so the designers of the park but it's all owned and operated um by by locals so um, and they so they know that this is a thing that will sell and it sells very, very well because in the 80s when it opens in Tokyo, there's this massive economic boom. So similar to 1950s America where there's a massive economic boom and there's this growing middle class and the Japanese love the park. Um, and they still do so to so this very day. Um, so you mentioned the idea of transcultural space. I think the idea is that like there's a lot of, academic study of trying to explain the success of Tokyo Disneyland, um, basically through cultural essentialism in one way or the other. So it's like, well, you know, Oh, the Japanese love this, so this must work. And I mean, there's a certain grain of truth to it, but I think it shouldn't be underestimated that it opens at a time of economic boom. And at a time when, um, the Japanese have a lot of time and money to, for leisure. Like they also change, uh, their work week to five um, days instead of six and stuff like that you know um so i think like the japanese definitely take it on there's a lot of idea of the japanese also sort of transform it into a japanese cultural item it isn't even american anymore but i think that's also too simple there's always sort of this mixture of cultures so i work a lot with the term of localization when you take a global product and sort of transfer it to a local market and make it appealing to a local market. And I think that's what happens. Um, and again, there's sort of this zeitgeist for certain things. I mean, the Japanese also already know Disney film. They love Disney films. So that ha- helps obviously. Um, and then with Euro Disney, that's such a complicated story as well, because it is very much framed as this failure, but that's too simple a narrative. Um, and I spent at least over fifty pages in the book talking about it. But the short explanation um that I find is that there's also a lot of people's again, sort of a cultural essentialism going on that people say, Well, you know, it didn't work because the French just, you know, that's too simple an entertainment for yeah. them. It's they're too sophisticated <laughs> to understand it. Um, which is obviously nonsense. Um, because and I mean they also don't just target the French with it, it's a Western European um, audience that they want to get at, that's also what they call it, Euro Disney Um, in the beginning, which is also a problem because the idea of Europe isn't actually that popular in the early 1990s Um, but yeah, one of the things that makes it a financial failure in the beginning is actually a massive recession after the fall of the Berlin Wall Um, and that's never really taken into account in sort of the popular, um, like even the media coverage at the time is basically just saying, well, you know, the French don't like Disney without looking at the fact that there's a massive recession and people can't afford to come. And this is before the euro as well. So for a while in the UK, it was cheaper for you to go to the US to visit Walt Disney World than visit um, Disneyland Paris or Euro Disney as it was called then because of the currency rates. So, you know, there's a lot going on with this. And again, my argument also is they kind of don't understand how to target sort of the French middle class, the German middle class, maybe even the English middle class that are doing better with English visitors. Um, because they don't understand the concept of the resort and what they're building in Paris is also this kind of vacation resort. We all vacation very differently in Western Europe compared to the Americans, which also has to do with how many vacation days we have. So in the end, what I'm saying is it's very, very complicated, but in no way is it just, you know, Western Europeans just are too sophisticated to enjoy theme parks, which is obviously not true because it's still around. It's actually doing fairly, fairly well or it did so before the pandemic, um and disney films are doing well here like <laughs> you
1: know yeah i mean you, you, you draw a bit of a distinction actually between the you know um the kind of the, the parks visitor figures and and you know which um sections of the french and, and also western european society were you know kind of up for going and then this you know kind of hypercritical um sort of cultural elite backlash in in the french press and you know a, a sort of a broader um narrative that linked, you know, the business struggles to uh, a broader sense of, I guess, you know, kind of uh, resistance to US cultural imperialism and, you know, the um, the dumbing down of contemporary culture through Disney and stuff like this. But actually, as you mentioned, you know, people do love it and they are well up for it. And uh, it is very much still there, <laughs> which, yeah. you know, is is testament to some uh, elements of cultural relevance and uh, you know, a, a set of kind of changes in, in business practice. The the other two uh, case studies in the book um, are, I think, particularly fascinating in terms of Disney as a uh, as a kind of corporation that is seeking to open um, particular uh, markets and seeking um, what I might describe as kind of accommodations um, with particular uh markets as well and this is um disneyland in hong kong and also in shanghai Uh, and 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 again we might run those two together in terms of um the kind of the idea of class and, and a particular kind of demographic being part of the uh story for i guess what we might describe as hong kong struggles um but also part of the reason for the kind of um success story in shanghai and at the same time shanghai returning as i guess to this kind of you know sense of a transcultural space and, and there is something to be said i think for the success stories being where the corporation kind of does their homework about the context into which they're about to uh to build the theme park
0: yeah definitely and it also makes sense to lump them together in this way but mainly because Disney actually wants to build this park in mainland China to begin with. And they have the idea to do so in the nineties, basically after Paris. Um, And, but then, but then back then it's still very, very tricky to interact with the government of the people's Republic of China, which is obviously also a whole problematic uh, chapter in and of itself of like a corporation working with this government but they can't reach an agreement. There's also difficulties. And so they end up going to Hong Kong first because Hong Kong obviously used to be a British colony. Um, It's handed over again uh, in the late nineties. And sort of this context is when they start to negotiate building a park there. It eventually doesn't open until 2005, but, um, which is probably actually still better for it because I think if they had tried to open it as early as the late 90s, it would have been even harder to sort of get people to visit. Um, because again, the class factor is important. You have to build an audience and you have to find out where they're going to come from. So when they opened in 2005, they struggled to find an audience um, because it just local Hong Kong visitors would probably also not be enough for it. Um, they still bank on having tourists, particularly from mainland China coming, but that is sort of a still politically difficult issue at the time, Um, also an issue of people being able to afford to travel to Hong Kong as well. And what what they're kind of doing is they build a very lackluster park. If you look at what Hong Kong Disney looked like in 2005, it's just a sort of... Very very small scale version of sort of the Disneyland park in Anaheim um with hardly any of the rides, <laughs> so it's also not super attractive um for people to go there for more than maybe a day at a time um and then they really when they really start to build more attractions and 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 then it becomes more successful. So, they really, when they really start to invest in it and then also try to find out about cult- cultural sensibilities. Um, because local Hong Kong visitors uh, or sort of the fans of the park become also very protective of it. And on a larger scale, it also becomes this idea of like, well, we, you know, we have this American park here or this American idea here, and it should be an attractive thing. So, they become protective of it, especially against mainland Chinese visitors. So, there's a lot of conflict between. Those two groups as well that also tie in with class, but it would go too far to go into this now. Um, but then, when Shanghai finally opens um, in 2016, so they sort of pick up negotiations again at some point, make the deal, um, and build the park. So the that is really when they finally at a moment where China is booming economically and i mean this is something that experts are coming for a while this is why disney was interested in going there they knew what they were doing but i think they almost started to try it too early but when they opened 2016 this is apparently exactly the right moment um because it is successful it's doing very well lots of people want to go there um, and if you look at the two parks, like Shanghai is very different. It's one of the only parks that really breaks with this template for the park. So you no longer have Main Street USA. So it's very sort of away from these more ideologically American patriotic ideas. It's much more about Disney and what the sort of the, the um, intellectual properties that Disney owns now. Um, sort of a best off of also different Disney theme parks that aren't just the Disneyland, because obviously, like, if you know Disney parks, it's not just Disneyland. They usually now have resorts with two or three different parks, uh, or in the case of Walt Disney World, even four. So, um, and that's, I think, is also a clever thing because sort of. The experiences you can have in Shanghai are very different from the park in Hong Kong. So as a foreign visitor, you can easily go there and experience both in one trip, and many people do. And if you're in from mainland China, if you ever make the trip to Hong Kong, it will still be worth it. Um, and China is enormous. Like, I mean, the US <laughs> is doing fine with true parks. China is doing fine with the parks in that way. I mean, we've
1: really only scratched the surface uh, of of the book. And and, and obviously, you know, I strongly urge uh, people to read it both, you know, in in terms of how interesting the the analysis is. And as I said at the start, both because it's just, you know, really kind of great and fascinating story. And I think it's particularly poignant now when obviously, you know, most of us across the globe, irrespective of wealth, class position, access to travel, uh, you know kind of not allowed to go um to these these parks. I mean there are billions of people who you know realistically couldn't go uh pre-pandemic, but obviously the pandemic has, you know, shut many of these um parks and, and and associated kind of spaces down. And I wonder as a way of kind of concluding, usually, you know, like I might ask academics about what they're working on now and how their work is developing, but I guess you've got a real sort of expertise and insights on these places. And I wonder, you know, w- what the kind of future of them is in pandemic times and the extent to which uh, the book might be, uh, you know, more than a cultural history but of, of, of the parks, but, you know, almost the kind of a cultural history of um, a, a particular way of even kind of um, experiencing and, and being able to do the, the theme parks as well.
0: Yeah, I think it will be interesting. I mean, at the time, like right now, the most of the parks are closed. Um interestingly enough, Walt well, Disney World of Florida is open and has been since last July. Um, but that also has to do with how the US has been handling the yeah. pandemic, or certain parts of the US have been yeah. handling the pandemic, because Disneyland and Anaheim has been closed since yeah, last year, March and has never opened. Meanwhile, Hong Kong has reopened sometime last summer, had to close again. The same happened to Disneyland Paris, obviously. They didn't just fully reopen. They always had intense measures. And I mean, what Disney World also has intense measures. There's, you have to wear a mask. You have to socially distance. But that's also massively affecting how you experience the park. Um, So a lot of, like, what actually... also makes the park experience which is actually not something i have a lot of time discussing in the book is for instance entertainment so you know the nightly fireworks shows that have at this point evolved into like other media multimedia spectacles or the parades or all of that stuff there's tons of shows and things happening at any given moment in time in these spaces and That's something they had to cancel for Corona measures as well because that's where crowds get together and you can't control on rights. You sort of have crowd control. I mean, that's what queues do anyway. Um, So it's a bit easier to handle, but um, that has already gone away and they had to let tons and tons of people go first from the entertainment departments um, who are often only seasonally contracted to begin with. They had to let Tons of other like regular employees go and, um, yeah, it will be really interesting. And Disneyland just stopped their annual pass program, like the one in Anaheim. That's also a big step. Um, so I think the pandemic changes will be felt for a very long time, even in an ideal future where we're all vaccinated and sort of back to normal. Um, I don't know how they will change. I mean, I hope that sort of a lot of this comes back because it really makes the experience, but we can't quite be sure. Because if they need to save money, they're going to start saving it in those places first. Um, And yeah, it will be very interesting generally how the tourism industry is going to deal with it. I mean, Disney also owns uh, this right now four and soon five and six cruise ships and they're not sailing anywhere and um yeah it will be really interesting how mass sort of mass tours mass entertainment continues to be impacted by this because i think we will feel it for a very very long time even when we no longer have to deal with like direct corona measures of social distancing (laughs) etc